Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kamura. Hey, everyone. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Luke Stutters. Hello. Darren Bramer. Dean Salutations. I didn't quite catch that, but uh, <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Our special guest this week is Jason Densmore. Jason, do you want to introduce yourself, let people know who you are and why you're famous? Sure. Hey, everyone. My name's Jason Densmore. First developed Rails app back in Rails 2. And since then, kind of Rails 2, Rails 3 era of things, I also dabbled in iOS and Android dev and got full-time back into Rails on version 4 and been full-time on, on Rails ever since. So excited to be here today. Yeah, good deal. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, we ran across your What's Cooking in Rails 7, and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting when we have a new version coming and we get new features and stuff like that. So we thought, hey, this, this would be great. Let's talk about this. So I'm a little curious just to, to kind of pull in and get started. Which feature in Rails 7 are you most excited for? I'm most excited about the encryption feature. I don't have a specific use case for it, but I'm sure I won't, ha- I won't have any trouble finding one. It's a Kind of, kind of new to have that baked into Rails. Mm-hmm. I got a question about encryption here. Why? It's all math. Why? I, I, I can do the math. I can do the math. I can do the math. It's the how does that make things more secure? Surely, surely, if they've gone onto your database, right? If they're in the database, then it's game over, isn't that? Why bother to encrypt it? Well, if it if it's sitting in the database, it'll be sitting sitting there encrypted, so it won't be readable. Mm-hmm. To whoever has access to your database. Granted, if they have access to Rails console, they could load the model into Rails memory mm-hmm. and, and they'd see the plain text. But if all they have is your database, they would only see encrypted text in the database. Yeah. And in fact, most of the major, what's the word? Where where somebody gets in, where somebody breached, and one the major breaches, right? Where you see, oh, so and so's got all the password hashes for all the people, right? They usually do that by compromising the database engine and getting a copy of the database. And so if that happens, like Jason said, then they don't have that data, right? So they don't have the email address or the phone number or the social security number or whatever it is you're encrypting. Yeah, obviously, if they get access to Rails, then that's a different story because Rails knows how to decrypt it because it has a decryption key and it knows which algorithm to use. So I guess that's the difference on what industry you're in compliance. If Mm -hmm. you're in a certain kind of industry which requires you to encrypt the data at rest, then you have to reach for some level of database encryption. Well, and anymore, because I I work for a financial firm, right, for my full-time job. 
And I've done work on medical applications too, right? And so you have HIPAA and I can't remember the financial one, but you've got those regulations. But anymore, you've got like GDPR, you've got some of the privacy laws that were passed by California and some of these other places. And so you have to encrypt all the personally personal identifiable information. I think that's what it stands for. But anyway, you, you have to encrypt all that stuff anyway. And so, or you have to protect it. And so this is just another way to do that. And you almost have to do it in any app you work on anymore if you're going to operate in any of those places. Yeah, if, if you if you do, you probably use something like Adder Encrypted today. So that would be like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's your alternative to Rail 7. Plus, I, as far as I know, like that's the that's the big one. Is it possible to do it for a kind of a privacy reason? Because I know that you know, some of this came out of uh, a Hey email app and some services offer basically privacy. So the operator of the app can't read your messages. Is, is there anything that makes that easier or is it a bit higher level than that? You could do that. Like, for example, like if you were trying to do it today, Adder Encrypted would give you that thing too. I know that, so one of the cons with doing this, right, is it makes your data access slower. I mm-hmm. presume that base, the basic same thing is happening with Rails 7, or that's the, like, it, it's not improving speed over Adder Encrypted, for example. I haven't compared the two. From what I understand, the Rails 7 implementation is pretty speedy. It While the, while the object's loaded in memory, everything is decrypted. And then when it writes it to the database, it actually encrypts it at that point. And, and vice versa, when it reads it from the database, it decrypts it. I don't know if Adder Encrypted allows searching. The Rails 7 functionality lets you search. Like if my name was encrypted, Jason Dinsmore, it would, it would allow you to do a search where name Jason Dinsmore and it would find the encrypted record. That's cool. Oh, yeah. cool. It is more difficult to do an adder. Like, it's not, I, you have to do some setup or something. It's been a while since I've done that. But yeah, to, I, for me, this looks a lot like, like, for example, when we migrated everything from like Paperclip and Carry Wave, I guess no one was actually using Paperclip at that point, right? To this <laughs> active storage or whatever, right? It's like one of these things where we've had something around the community for a long time and now it's like native and rails. And in almost all those cases, I've been pretty happy after the migration. So that's my expectation here. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't even think about that, but yeah, the lookups fine by and stuff like that. I'm guessing that if you need to do some kind of indexed search, you're going to have to use something else, right? Yeah, yeah. most likely. And it, it doesn't support like uh, fuzzy searching where you're, where you're searching for right. a substring of the encrypted text. Um, because you have to de-encrypt the entire column. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you're, also, you're also kind of giving up some security to have the ability to search because when you want to support being able to search a column, basically every row that that column is encrypted with the same initialization vector, so so it only has it. It's kind of it's kind of, it's interesting how it performs the search. It basically, when it writes the content to the table, it gets stored in serialized JSON. So it's a it's a hash, and the hash has the initial initialization vector that the encryption was performed with, and it's got like that's under like the IV key in the hash. Then there's a P key in the hash that has the payload, which is the encrypted string. And so if, if you want to be able to search, you have to declare the encryption on the column as deterministic. And that way, every entry in that column is encrypted with the exact same initialization vector, essentially. So basically, if you put text into the encryption function, you'll get the same text out for every row in the thing. So if, if there were two people named Jason Dinsmore, our encrypted text in the database would look exactly the same. 
So the IB is like a seed for the encryption. Yeah, yeah. So that would potentially make it easier to break if you turn on search, but you'd still be there for a very long time. Yeah, but if you know what one value is, then you can look through the database and be able to identify any other rows that have that same value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the rainbow striping that they talked about with passwords kind of had that same thing, right? Cool. Did everyone else get a chance to look through kind of the stuff come up in Rails 7? What what else are you guys looking forward to? Uh, maybe Jason can chime in with something else. If, oh, go ahead, John. I was going to say, I have I have two, two for me that are interesting. One is being able to build an association in the has one through. I can't say that I encounter this all the time, but I, I do remember like a specific instance when I encountered it and it was just surprising to me. And it took me a while to figure out that I couldn't do that. And uh, it was just a pain in my butt, and I was just very upset about that. But now we now we'll be able to do it. And then the other one is actually the one that I'm probably the most excited about personally, which is the tag attributes from hash thing that, that you mentioned in your article, Jason, whatever. The ability basically in our views to create attributes on my tag just from passing a hash, because I always felt like I should be able to do that, and that's not exactly how it works. It works that way with data, but now I can do it with everything that's not data. Yeah, I didn't have like a specific use case when I saw that, but it seemed pretty exciting because I know I've been guilty of putting like ternary expressions in my tags and views, like mm-hmm. if some condition, then apply this class, otherwise apply this class or that sort of thing. So now I can do all that stuff in a helper and the helper method could just return a hash and boom, I can use that tag attributes from hash feature to to generate all the uh, attributes for my tag. Uh, decorators too. Yep. I mean, I got off the helper train a long time ago, so I use decorators, but it's the same idea. I, I, I don't yep. spend enough time on the front end. <laughs> Another yeah. feature I, th- I thought was kind of cool is Active Records invert where clause. It basically takes a, a where where query and converts it to a where not. Which I thought seen. you could already do that. <laughs> <laughs> you can if it's like where, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this example a lot, where, where name Jason Dinsmore. You could just do where dot not name Jason Dinsmore. But if you had a scope, like a, a Jason scope, then you could do user.json.invertware and it would get you all users uh, without that name. Uh-huh. So it, that seems like it'd be useful for scopes. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, the invertware also will have some strange side effects if you use it improperly. So if you have multiple scopes that you're chaining in and if you do an invertware, then you can get some unexpected results. So it's one of those things where you have to, you know, test it out pretty well. There was a blog post about that some number of months ago where people demonstrated some very unexpected outcomes from it. I just put it in chat. I actually found it. This is why you should always write your own queries. Stop using LRMs. Well, I I could see this like if it's the example that was uh, put into the article here that Jason put up, right? That's that's a pretty straightforward where, right? And so I, I'm thinking, okay, you know, for the simple lookups, it seems pretty safe. But yeah, you know, if you chain together dot where this, dot where that, dot where this other thing, does it invert the whole thing? Or does it just invert? Does it just put a yes. where not and then put it in parens? Basically yeah. inverts everything. That you okay. Have. And that's where I think the article is talking about the danger. Like, right. I mean, I, I agree. I think this is a useful tool, right? 
obviously, mm-hmm. like many things in Ruby, you can shoot yourself in the foot with it if you if you use it wrongly. <laughs> yeah. The the other question I have about this is can I do a dot where something dot invert where and then continue to chain onto it with another where? No, I think that's the point where it will invert the whole thing. Okay. I don't think the placement of the invert where really matters, matters. in this case. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where you need to be aware what that actually does. And then yep. it could be extremely useful. But if you are just reaching for it because you don't want to do something like alive, disable that, nil, alive, disable that, true, then you're going to have <coughs> a bad time. So it's just something yep. that you have to be aware of before you start reaching for new shiny things, what the actual implications are. I can answer your question, Chuck. So as I was reading farther into this Danger Zone article, it talks about, for example, putting invert where inside of a scope definition, right, is going to affect, thing, affect things that are outside of that scope definition. I think the answer uh, is yep. yes. Yeah, okay. Got to be cautious with it. Yep. But that's no really? different from before. We've always had things that you can put inside your scope definitions that cause problems yeah. outside. Yep. I'm curious One. What, happens, what happens if you chain two scopes together that are both using invert where? <laughs> where not, where not. <laughs> it, it, based on based on what we have read so far, it, it would sound to me like it's... Uh, look, I'm speculating, right? Like, it seems to me like it's probably a flag, right? And then uh-huh. when Arrow compiles hmm. the clause, right, it probably at the end, like, inverts everything. Or, or not at the end, but like when it's visiting out all the nodes. That seems like the safer way to build it. I'm also looking at the the article and the one right below it is the exclude a record from results. And I thought that was pretty handy too, because sometimes, yeah, I, I know I don't want like the latest one. I want everything else or something like that. And so I can just say, yeah, I'm already, I've already got this one. Don't use it or don't show it. Yeah, I, th- I thought that one seemed I, pretty useful too. I know it's syntactic sugar, but yeah. I mean, really, when the, the dot where dot not. 90% of, of these new features are, are just shorthand for something that's already accomplishable. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, but it cleans up my interface so I don't have to parse two calls. I can just look at it and say, okay, it just excludes that one. Can you chain a bunch of those together too and say not this or this or this or this? That's a good question. I assume you can. I would assume you can too. I would assume you have a code smell if you're doing that. <laughs> probably according to the PR description it looks like you can pass in multiple arguments which might just get you close to what you're asking for oh okay yeah and then it does uh, not in or something like that so one that I didn't quite get my head around was the re- redirect back or two so yes. is the is the fallback yeah. just I don't know what back means and so I'm just going to go to wherever yeah. the fallback location yeah speaking of, of syntactic sugar that one yeah, basically just re- eliminates the keyword argument for the fallback location. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask about some of these that I'm not as familiar with either. Like I, I have never run Rails stats, and so I had no idea that that, that was even there. So, so yeah. what is it, and then what's added in Rails seven? So it, it basically gives you a quick overview of what's in the project. I haven't run it for a while, to be honest. I believe it gives you uh, like the number of lines in each class. Uh, how many? I think it gives you code coverage. Eh, maybe not. Definitely tells you how many lines are in each class, how many methods are in each class, I believe, and that sort of thing. It gives you lines of code broken down by like number of files, lines of code broken down by the different types, like language by language. So Ruby, ERB, JavaScript, etc. I, I used it, I think, when I first started 
with Rails, or probably when I first realized it was there, I was just curious when I did Rails new, how much code is it actually generating, which is quite quite a fair amount. Yeah, so the, the new feature just adds uh, CSS and ERB views to the output of that mm-hmm. command. Okay. There was one thing that I, that I saw kind of buried in uh, the active support stuff or whatever that I have in my notes is, is coming up. It's been a pain point for me in the past, but if you've ever done, if you've used uh, Rails credentials and you've like nested stuff in your file, you probably were like, oh, it's really cool like, that I can, you know, uh, use a, a method call, right, to get the top level credentials, but then you have to dig in order to get stuff further down, which isn't that bad, but it's annoying and it looks different. But now, now you can chain method calls all the way down if you like that better. I mean, it makes sense considering the whole rest of the thing is just the chain of method calls. So I don't know, for me, I feel like it's going to look better to do that. Yeah, I think so too. For example, fetching like AWS credentials out of out of there. It's mm-hmm. like Rails application.credentials.aws. Then you have to start using symbols to fetch the things under that. And then if you split it up by like production, staging, or UAT or something, right? Like then you then you suddenly end up with more, even more digging to do. Yeah. Rails 6 uh, introduced support for separate credentials files for each environment, which is really nice. Yeah, I'm... One other thing I'm looking at here that I'm trying to figure out where I would use this is the benchmark. I mean, I know that you could access it through Active Support Benchmarkable, but like adding it to Rails Benchmark, I don't know, beyond the shorthand and things like that. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what I've benchmarked stuff, but I usually just do it from the Rails console. And so now I can just do Rails Benchmark. Is that kind of the deal? Yeah, I always, Rails I, I always have to go look up the syntax for yeah using benchmark like i've actually got a gist on github that is a sample benchmark and i just copy and paste that so this really simplifies the interface to it mm-hmm. the uh the list of things that i have wanted to benchmark has only rarely included actual ruby code and almost always been like a sql query or something so mm. i have also not used it that much and uh outside of like a couple heated discussions about whether a particular pattern choice would be better than another due to performance reasons. Yep. Likewise, uh, trying to justify using single-coded strings over double-coded strings or that sort of thing. Yeah, that's uh, that, yeah. that's funny because that's actually what I was thinking of this before. Because <laughs> <laughs> it actually used to be a performance difference back in the day and somewhere in there it changed and I didn't notice when it changed. I was having a discussion yeah. with somebody about that. A million times do. Look, I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the one that was wrong in this case. Yeah. Accessing databases is about the slowest thing, really IO in general, but accessing databases is about the slowest operation that you're going to perform. So if we could just get rid of those databases, we would be in great shape. It's like a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so sign just, me up. Use Redis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's weird. I just lost some data because Redis ran out of memory. Yeah, Redis is worse than a normal database. <laughs> Redis is great, just not at permanently storing data. <laughs> All of the inconvenience of storing your data externally with none of the useful tools. It's fast at deleting my data. <laughs> Does it automatically. <laughs> so one thing I'm wondering about is the unpermitted parameter context. So what is that? Because hmm. there wasn't really a code sample with it, and I'm having a little trouble visualizing what it does. Yeah, I, I should have provided some more information about that. In Rails 5, well, ever since strong attributes begin to be enforced, mm-hmm. if you 
have an unpermitted attribute posted to your controller, then Rails will emit like a unpermitted attribute foo found for, I think it gives you the controller name. Mm-hmm. And that's really all the information that it's provided previously. And, and now it kind of gives you a lot, a lot more information and that output gives you the action name, the uh, request that was made and the filtered parameters. Oh, uh, there you go. That will be nice because I have a few coworkers that aren't as familiar with some of these features like the strong attributes. And so they're trying to figure out why something's not working and it, it would be nice if it logged out more stuff and said, hey, this is what's going on. Because usually what happens is they'll run it, they'll get me the output from their log or share their screen, and then I have to look at it and tell them what's going on. And so more verbose output in this case, at least on development, would be really nice. Yeah. Well, one thing you could do in that case, Chuck, it looks like I'm just looking at the code around the action controller. There is an action on unpermitted parameters, and you can set it to raise, and it'll actually raise an error. Oh. So if you set that in your development environment, you can kind of see that in your web GUI instead of having to look at the yeah. log. Oh, there you go. If I, I don't know if I'd want to do that in prod. In prod. <laughs> yeah, I think it's by uh, default on in development and by default <clears throat> off in prod. Okay. It's been a little while, but people who have migrated up from old versions of Rails may have a different setting. Mm. Or, or somebody that went in there and explicitly changed it, of course, too. Yeah. I got to say that strong parameters conversion has got to be one of the most painful things uh, with respect to upgrades ever. <laughs> it's definitely tedious. That's for sure. Yeah. I also yeah. like that they... Uh... Oh, go ahead. You, you didn't like the adder accessor in the model days? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the good old days. So one other thing that I'm seeing here that makes me happy is the the lazy loading by default in in images. Correct me if I'm wrong. The lazy loading has been in a browser standard thing for a little while now. It's not been out it's there. It's been for around too for a while. Long. But and it is something that you could set in your image tags already, but now it's just giving you some nice way of setting it. Yeah, you can set it globally now. So any image tag that your Rails app generates would would have that attribute set. Nice. I just I I look at some of the easy performance gains, and that seems like one of them, right? Sure. Yeah, not having to load every image on your page right right when the page loads. Yeah. On JavaScript Jabber, though, we had a conversation about or it was the performance metrics that Google put out right for for their stuff, and said if you're not complying with this stuff, then uh, or if your numbers are bad, then it's going to affect your SEO score. And one of them was how much your your stuff moves after it loads the HTML. And so you can have it lazy load your images, but then the containers for the image have to have to play nicely with the as far as like having their height and width set so that things don't move once it loads the HTML, even if it's going to lazy load an image into it later. So you do have to be aware of that. That's Makes frustrating, sense. Otherwise, actually. Otherwise, the page content kind of jumps around. Yeah, and if it jumps around, then you get penalized for it. So You would have thought, wouldn't you, that Google could just look at the um, the variance, like the standard deviation, to tell the difference between a user that's waiting for a page to load and a user that's looking at the page after it's loaded without interacting. Yeah, I think I think it's mostly focused on user experience. And so 
as it loads in, if things are moving around, then it's a poor user experience versus things just kind of materializing as it gets everything it needs to make it look right. Isn't that like an HTML3 thing where you used to like have the placeholder, the image size, it come up gray? <laughs> yep. And have the time it was just a broken JPEG. Yeah. So, I mean, yep. does it come down to that? Google SEO can now be gained using 1998 HTML. I don't know. <laughs> first thing, first design pattern that we've come back to. So correct me if I'm wrong with the lazy loading. It's still going to load the images when you first paint the screen, but only for what's in the viewable viewport. Mm. It's not going to load the other 100 images you have further down the page that's not in your view. But as you start scrolling down, then it's going to start loading it in. Isn't that the way the HTML's lazy loading is working, or am I off there? That sounds right to me. Uh, but you can correct. still have resize events, right? So if if things further down the page are affecting height and width and, and layout of things. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's a fair assumption, though, that they generally won't. I don't know if the request fires so. off before the image, or like right as the image tag, or image scrolls into the viewport, or if it kind of anticipates it's coming, or I imagine it's pretty naive and just does it right when it becomes visible. Yeah, I don't know how the browsers have implemented that, but yeah. And also related to that, the the SEO penalization only happens within the viewport as well, right? So stuff resizes further down the page, you don't get hit for that. Perfect. But it's it's interesting just to think about, okay, I am going to get this boost off of the browser working in a particular way. What about the number and range validator? Make anyone feel good? I had a hard time getting terribly excited about that one because I think <laughs> the same thing's accomplishable using like greater than or or less than. Yeah. Yeah, you could do it with two validations before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Look, look, uh, Rails does all these things all the time, right? Where it just does this minor increment, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I could already do that before. This isn't all that cool, right? But then over time, I discovered that my life is so much better because a whole bunch of these stacked up and just made my life better. Yeah, it's true. And it makes it easier to read. So if you have a whole bunch of those, right? Yep, I mean... I, I definitely was part of the crowd that was like, you know what? I like the hash rocket. I want to keep it. And it looks like that I can't use JSON style, you know, hash <laughs> declaration everywhere. So we should just do hash rocket everywhere, right? But now I'm a big JSON uh, style fan, right? Rails just pushes me along. It's okay. Yeah. I think we've talked about everything in here except for the average on column, respecting column type. Is that doing an average like in Rails or is it using some database side feature to do averaging. That was the, the active record calculations module. There's an average function. So active records handling that on the result set that, that's getting returned. Okay. And there, there were a couple of issues with the current implementation. One being that I think it always returned. I, I should probably read what I wrote in the article before I, I talk too much. It says it always returned a big decimal before and now it It'll return a float or an integer if everything, if that column's a float or an integer. Yep, yep, that's correct. And the the big decimal thing had a uh, side effect uh, as it uh, affected big decimals get returned as strings in JSON, whereas floats oh. don't. So 
the type information wouldn't carry over to if you're loading that JSON in JavaScript or something like that. I didn't realize that. That is an interesting one and, and maybe even a separate discussion, you know, whether you want decimals to be represented or to be serialized as strings in JSON or not. We recently had this discussion on the project I was working on and we essentially just decided to always treat them or always represent them as strings so that we would always have control over the precision, accuracy, you know, not not leave any of that logic to the libraries that are dealing with it and just always use strings so we would be in control of that, which is especially important when you're dealing with things like money or really there's lots of use cases where it would be important. But yeah, that's what we ended up doing. Yeah, everybody always gets so serious when money's involved. <laughs> Can't imagine why. <laughs> it does have it does have a tendency to do that. <laughs> they can't be storing my bank balance as a string, though, can they? Surely not. <laughs> well, this is just in transit when we send your account balance over the wire from or from one service to another. In plain text, of course, along with your social security information, which we didn't encrypt. I might actually write to my bank about that. That's really troubled me. I don't like the idea of my money being a string. I mean, have you ever used Big Decimal before, right? Like it often uses, we often use string representations when we are trying to convert between different kinds of things. Like Ruby is a great example of this because it actually, and I think JavaScript's Big Decimal too. You create your number by passing a string in typically. Generally, I just don't have that many things. Uh, JavaScript know. has yeah. all kinds of weird coercion, so yeah, uh, I don't know. Well, but Java, JavaScript does have a big decimal implementation. Most languages do. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell you what bites yeah. me uh, is what Darren was saying: is the precision. Precision really bites me. I think what Luke what? is going after in Rails eight, he would like to see an adder emoji method, which stores your strings as emojis in the <laughs> database. <laughs> uh, I think Aaron Patterson he, was trying to write that at RailsConf a few RailsCons ago. <laughs> I thought emojis were strings. They are encoded strings. Yeah. Ah. So, so I, I get it. I get it. It's like a kind of emoji encryption. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever worked so, with someone who's put a an emoji in the name of their repository? I have a coworker that puts them in the names of his commits and PRs. I can't stand that. At least I, I don't I, have I to really type those out. <laughs> I, 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 that, that really, I mean, I know it's an age thing, right? I know it's because I'm getting older now. So I accept that. But it doesn't annoy me any less. If anything, it annoys me more when I see emojis in in commits, repository names. Luke, can I can I clarify? Did you did you use the term emoji encryption? Is is that a way to? Uh, is it a new term or a new concept to encrypt uh, information via emojis? No, I think I think Dave just invented it though. <laughs> adder adder yeah. emoji. Sorry if I, I didn't just put it to the right place, Dave. <laughs> I just have to say, Luke, that your payment of winky face with your tongue out dollars is on its way. So very generous. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. But I'm going to have to. Obviously, I'm in the UK, so I'm going to have to exchange it into. I know, right? Right. Your your exchange algorithm is going to choke on that. There's probably an emoji crypto that you can convert that into. Oh, there we go. Emoji conversion. Just put it on the blockchain. (laughs) Yeah. Are there other things that have, because this article's from April, so I'm wondering now that it's July, are there other things that have kind of come along for Rails 7 that, that 
that, that you also wanted to bring up or that you think people ought to know about? That's a very good question. I haven't really kept on top of the change logs. I know that commits are constantly coming in mm-hmm. and, and PRs being merged. So I'm sure there's more in there. I'm just not super familiar with it. Yeah. I guess the yeah, other thing I skipped some... over from this... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say DHS himself was uh, popping up on the um, the Turbo repositories on GitHub on some open issues. So uh, there's, there's still tangible movement there. Mm. I just yeah. found one that's actually super interesting, also kind of a little bit esoteric. So if you're familiar with Upsert or whatever, now you can actually pass in on Duplicate. Yeah, there's, there's some... Look, I, uh, going through the change logs, there's some small, nice things that are getting added. Yep. I, I know there's been a lot more work around supporting multiple databases, which was introduced in Rails 6, I believe. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's been a lot more work on that. I just haven't had occasion to use it, so it didn't really light my fire too much. But I know, I know there's yep. been a fair amount of work in that area. Do yep. you think that in Rails 7, we are going to see a shift more towards back to sprockets instead of webpacker because with and where i'm coming with this is with turbo and hotwire it looks like they are favoring using the esx modules and importing those opposed to using webpacker i'm really not sure if i had my druthers i I think i'd prefer to stick with the, the tool for a while it seems like it's changed back and forth a few times Recently. No, wait a minute. Now we've got to keep changing it. Got to keep. Changing it. <laughs> uh, they're just going to wait. They're going to wait until everyone's got Webpacker working, and then whoo, whisk whisk that rug out and replace it with Sprockets Two, Super Sprockets, Rail Sprocketize. How, uh, how do you? I don't know. It's going to be something Sprockety, right? Sprocket sprinkles. There we go. Right, right, right. <laughs> Inobtrusive Sprockets. Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't know. So so I think in my head, I think that Webpacker kind of signals to us, right? Look, modularization is the right thing, right? And Sprockets like intentionally like puts it all together in one namespace. So I feel like I, I feel like we're probably not going I don't know. I, I feel like we, we probably won't go back to that. But yeah, I'm I'm just that. looking forward to upgrading it to web thumbs up emoji packer. <laughs> I mean, there there are plenty of new tools out there other than Webpacker that we're not using, which is, it's good. I'm glad that Rails doesn't switch, you know, between all the packing systems every month. Yeah. And to be fair, I really do like Webpacker, despite what Luke says. I've found that it has allowed me or required me to write better JavaScript to keep my JavaScript code a bit more isolated than to just dump everything into whichever JavaScript file in the asset pipeline, which I felt like it. So I do think that it was a good shift as far as improving myself as a developer, despite what Luke says. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I've got a, I've got a, a thing I'm sitting on, uh, which is a demo of the Hotwire stack with zero javascript compilation so you can literally jam everything into a giant file or in fact whenever you wherever you want uh, and you might have just inspired me to release that i know, it, I know it's gonna it's gonna raise some eyebrows but yeah you can't you don't have to use webpacker you can you can kind of jam things in it takes more work but you can do it absolutely so so i don't think anyone denied the possibility that you could do this i i 
I always tell people that I can do anything they want. They just, it might take me a long time or it might cost them more money than they expect. Right. Like, and yeah, I mean, you can totally do that. I, I actually literally just got done on a rails for app with like, well, it was sprockets like early to something or whatever. Right. I just got done like getting stimulus to run through the sprockets pipeline. So like you can do things that maybe aren't necessarily recommended or the way that everybody else is doing totally. Uh, and you have to make a judgment call whether that's a good idea for you and your app or not. My app yeah. is not is not going to have Webpacker anytime soon. So I had to kind of decide how I want to get stimulus <laughs> into the app. Makes sense. Good deal. So all the change logs, I'm assuming, are pretty easy to access. That was the other part that I wanted to talk about briefly was, yeah, you went through the change logs, you looked at all this stuff. Are those just in the Git repos or or where do you find those change logs? Yeah, so at the, the top of my blog post, there's a link to kind of a master change log and that change log has links to the change log for all the like active record, okay. active support, all that stuff. Yeah, and really to put the post together, I, I just looked at each change log. If something looked interesting, I'd go find the PR for it and read the description, of course, and dig through the code and, and kind of figure out what changes were made and, and how things work. And actually, actually, right now I'm looking at the active record change log and it looks like there's still still stuff coming in. Like uh, Relation Destroy All now performs all of its work in batches by default, batches of 100 versus just every, like trying to destroy everything in the table all at once. Mm-hmm. Is there like a, um, I know uh, the last version of Rails was released live on Ruby Rogues. Is there is there like a release <laughs> schedule traditionally, or do they just kind of throw it out whenever they feel like? Because you know, let's let's not ignore the obvious thing about Rail Seven. It's got the number seven in it. Seven's a lucky number, right? It's also the day I was born. Seven's a very important number. So <laughs> are they kind of delay it to get it right? I don't know that a release date's been announced. Hopefully, hopefully they give us some heads up and it's not just kind of a tweet that goes out and tells us all it's it's available but we're less than a week away now from 7-7 oh man yeah he would wouldn't he i mean don't we usually <laughs> expect the rails releases in december like has anybody else forgotten that that's a ruby that, that's ruby is we that what christmas. i'm thinking yeah yeah whatever all right fine i get my ruby <laughs> presents at christmas get my Rails presents out of the times yeah yeah, I also need to acknowledge I did skip over the changing of the branch from master to main. I just, it doesn't change my life at all because whatever, it's a branch change. I know people have reasons for it, but I just kind of can't get myself to care. So I've, yeah. I've never actually used this feature of Rails because I've always created my repo and then created, created Rails mm-hmm. inside of it. Yeah. Oh no, I'll follow the default standard so if i do a git init and if it creates it as main then it is main if it creates it as master then it's master if it creates it as something else then it's something else so when that changes then my code will change as well i think i think if you do it on github it's now main github defaults to main now but yeah yep so then my github code repos are main yeah yeah but if you (laughs) yeah if you create the, if you just create, yeah, a default thing and then you you pour your rails into it, it'll create it with master and all right, good deal. Well, I think, I think we've been talking about this for about an hour. So let's go ahead and start uh, heading into picks and wrapping up. 
But this is really cool. And uh, hopefully we see more of this kind of thing from you, Jason, or from whoever whoever else wants to go through and let us know what else is coming. But we'll we'll try and stay on top of this so people know what's coming out in Rails. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do some picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Darren, you want to go first? I would love to. So I actually changed my pick on the fly based on our conversation here. This is a little bit of a a blind pick because I haven't used this yet. I just looked it up. (laughs) It is the Emojicryption app which looks like it runs on Android only right now, but it's got the GitHub repo, so you can check out the code. I can't wait until we're finished recording this episode. I can download this on my phone and type in some messages and see them encoded automatically in emojis. Nice. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to call in next week and be like, yes, it also encrypted my phone in emojis, and I don't know. Yeah. And, and, like, and, uh, I can't access loose, anymore. <laughs> yeah, and loose bank balance. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, my phone number Bad is bags. flower, fire truck, thumbs up, thumbs up, fire truck. <laughs> All right, Luke, what are your picks? I can pick the computer game. Computer game's called Factorio and comes with a warning. It's very addictive, especially if you like doing computery stuff. The closest I describe it would be imagine a game where you could kind of build your own analog computer. It's a very dangerous game. Do not play it. Factorio. If you have a quick look, you'll see why why it appealed to me and appeals to a lot of people. Um, other, my other pick, I can't remember if this is something I heard about on the show, but it's a thing called conventional commits. Does anyone use conventional commits? But this is something I've uh, discovered. And this is essentially just changing the start of your commit message instead of an emoji to kind of turn it into, say, kind of fix or feature. And then what you can do is you can set up a GitHub action to automatically release your software with a change log based on those commit messages. Yeah, it might be something everyone's already doing, but I've only just come across it and the potential for workflow automation is really quite substantial. So there we go. Factorio, the game, and conventionalcommits.org. Nice. Yeah, something I haven't seen, but makes sense. John, what are your picks? All right. So I am gonna I am gonna uh, piggyback a little bit on Luke here. I also recommend that you stay away from Factorio. It has sucked up <laughs> it once it once upon a time sucked up a large chunk of time for my life. And but I will recommend that if you are thinking about it, there's a particular YouTuber that I ended up liking to watch or that I liked watching or whatever. 
they like she she just talks through a lot of the stuff that you have to do in factorio catherine of sky or whatever so i'll just i'll recommend her as being someone you can watch for that so all right so type that in. good awesome so other thing obviously if you need to do encryption today definitely do add or encrypted and then for for the actual pick that i wanted to yap about or whatever today oh i'll save that for next week those are good picks those are good picks you can't end your cliffs on a pick a, a cliffhanger. <laughs> all right, all right. My last pick is is leaving people on cliffhangers. It's a really it's a really great technique. <laughs> Works great, as you can tell. All right, good deal. <laughs> all right, Dave, what are your picks? All right, so my pick are both techie this time. The first is CalDigit Element Hub. So I've been using the M1 as my daily driver. It's a laptop. And the problem with it is that I have only two stupid ports on it, which I have more than two devices I want to plug in plus power. So the CalDigit Element Hub gives you three additional Thunderbolt ports. And then you also have four USB Type A's. So it is a Thunderbolt 4. It is super awesome and fast. It does get a little bit hot, but it, it's pretty good. And then the other pick I have is also a CalDigit product because I recently upgraded my home network to 10 gigabit and the MacBook Pro does not include a 10 gigabit adapter. So that's really annoying. But getting the CalDigit Connect 10G allows you to have a Thunderbolt-based 10 gigabit network adapter. But it is extremely hot if you're doing a lot of transfers over the network, if you're saturating that bus. So what I ended up doing, and this is just because I don't want that thing to overheat. I have an old CPU cooler that I had in my closet for a number of years that wasn't doing, any, doing anything. So I just sit it on top of there and it keeps it really cool. So, But if heat is a concern, it does get very hot. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to throw in a few picks here myself. First of all, I am looking for some folks to help me with a couple of projects at devchat.tv. So if you're interested in helping out, I'd love to talk to you and just see, you know, that some of it's community-based, some of it's code-based, and some of it's podcast-based. So if you're if you're interested in being involved, just email me at cmaxw at devchat.tv. And yeah, I'll get back to you and we'll figure out how to make it all come together. Basically, one of the things that I'm working on is a collection of learning resources. It it It's literally an index of, of learning resources for Ruby. And uh, I'm looking to do it for JavaScript and some of the other communities we serve too. But I don't have time to build all the stuff that I need to build to make it do it, make it work. So if you want to be involved, I'd appreciate it. If you don't, if you're not comfortable with your rail skills, I am going to need people to just go find resources on the internet. So anyway... Uh, I really appreciate uh, everyone in the community that's reached out so far. I sent an email to the mailing list and I had a bunch of people get back to me. So I'm just going to throw it out here too. The other picks that I have, I've been listening to a book on Audible that I've just, I think it's my new favorite book. I mean, it's just, it it's awesome. And I really have kind of identified with characters. I really enjoy kind of the direction that it's gone. It's Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Just it, it's an awesome book. I, I'm I'm really 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 enjoying it. So uh, I'm going to pick that. And then uh, I had another pick, and I can't think of what it is. So I guess I'll just throw it out next week. Jason, do you have some picks for us? Sure do. My first pick is the Mutant Gym. It's a Ruby library written by MBJ on GitHub and Twitter. 
and it basically facilitates mutation testing your Ruby code. I'm a big fan of mutation testing. It really provides some super interesting and helpful insights into your code and the quality of it. For those who aren't familiar with it, basically it runs your tests against your code. And while it's doing that, it changes your code. So it'll do things like take a condition like if x greater than five, and it'll change it to if true or if false, or it'll swap out things in your code with nil, or it'll just delete a line of code. And the idea is that if it messes with the line of code and the spec doesn't fail, that either that line of code isn't tested or it's not tested well enough. It also does things like make stronger assertions. So if you're using like x.eql5, it'll swap it out with equal uh, to make a stronger assertion. And if a stronger assertion should could be made, then it should be made. Uh, so it's just super helpful. It gives you a lot of insight in your code. One thing I've noticed is that guard statements are often pretty difficult to justify in specs. Like if you have a method that takes a collection as a parameter and you have return if collection empty as your first line of code in the spec and then you iterate over that collection uh, using each or something like that next, the, the guard statement's just super tough to justify with mutant and it'll always just delete it. So I don't know. I don't know that that means you should always just skip the guard statement, but I thought that was interesting. My next pick is VS Code extension. It's called Remote SSH. I've been using it for a little over a year now on this client project that I've been on. And it basically, it lets my code live in the cloud. And I fire up VS Code locally, and it connects to my code repo that's sitting on EC2 instance somewhere. And then that EC2 instance talks to a database that's also kind of hosted in the cloud. So everything's uh, just not on my machine and fit surprisingly few hiccups with it. So I, I thought that would be a good thing to give a shout out. Again, that's remote SSH extension for VS Code. And my last pick would be uh, my place of work. I work at a consultancy. We're based out of Vancouver, Washington, just north of Portland, Oregon. We're called Hint. And the website is hint.io. And we're on a mission we feel pretty passionate about to help software development teams reach their full potential. And we're hiring. So if you'd like to come work with me, reach out to me on Twitter at Dinjas, D-I-N-J-A-S. And I'd be happy to, to point you to the right folks. But we're, we're looking to do things like help companies adopt sustainable software development lifecycle life practices and methods, uh, improve their developer tooling, improve their continuous integration and continuous delivery setups and, and that sort of thing. So be, be super excited to hear from any of y'all. Cool. And if people want to uh, talk about some of these projects you're working on, but specifically if people want to like follow you on Twitter or something, I'm, I'm assuming you're easy to find there. Yep. Uh, D-I-N-J-A-S. Like Ninja All right. with a D. <laughs> All right. We'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming, Jason. This was awesome. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.